politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to fight for life, liberty, and property. This is literally 1776 over again. And it looks like we are getting closer to that moment. Thank God it took insanely long, two years worth, but we are slowly but gradually getting to the point where the truth is going to come out. The question is, are we going to rectify our government, our society, our economy based on these truths that we're discovering? We are here at CR Podcast Blaze Media to keep you guys informed. We got a very special show today with uh, frontline nurses. We're going to be talking about what is going on in America's hospitals. Uh, That is something that is not going to change, uh, even with, with the restrictions falling off in many places. We cannot allow them to get away with this. We have to research what's going on. COVID also still is percolating, and people do need help. So this is going to be your guide. I get a lot of terrible emails from people. What do I do? I have someone on BiPAP. They're threatening to ventilate him. What do I ask for? What are the strategies? So uh, we're going to have the frontline nurses on momentarily to discuss this. But I want to touch on some very important points before we bring on our guest that will blow your mind, news that is going to blow your mind. And it demonstrates that, as I said, the other side is getting extremely desperate. They're going to cover up. They're going to destroy evidence. They're going to lie. And we need to uncover this, not just to hold them accountable and bring them to justice for everything they did, both creating COVID and COVID fascism and denial of care and, and the genocide of the, of the clot shots, uh, you know, in the past, but headed forward. The biomedical state is still in place, even if tomorrow all of the restrictions end. So there's a couple things we have to get out on the docket with them approving Moderna officially with no data that it even works in their mind for Omicron, and then Pfizer announcing an EUA request for six-month-olds. God help us. First sponsor today, Patriot Academy. Uh, They've been putting on these uh, handgun defense and constitution training classes. We did have to cancel them for the next few months because they're changing venues to a different uh, uh, gun range. So we'll talk about that at a later date. But I want you guys to know that they do other things as well. You could become a constitution coach for Patriot Academy. We need an educated citizenry. That's what's very clear about this. They're on the front lines of Patriot Academy on the the mission to educate, train, and inspire millions of citizens to know and live their freedoms. Their Constitution Coach program has online courses and materials produced by Rick Green, America's Constitution Coach. Throughout these courses, you will hear from numerous subject matter experts, including historian David Barton and others. And you don't have to know anything about history, Constitution, or the law to get started. You could download their training for free. Hundreds of thousands of people have participated in Patriot Academy's courses with almost 100,000 in 2021 alone. You can find a class today or sign up to be a Constitution Coach so you could host other people at your home and take the course together. This is how you uh, meet and form groups together, these cells that we need to create. Go to PatriotAcademy.com. That's PatriotAcademy.com. Sign up today to help restore our Constitutional Republic. 
Okay, so I want to start off with this. If we have no time for anything else, you got to hear this. Last week, we broke the news on the DMED data. This is the Defense Medical Epidemiological Database that tracks every single uh, diagnosed ailment from a military doctor for active duty military um, any day, week, month, year. And we produced enormous data sets that demonstrate two, 300% and sometimes 1,000% increases in neurological, cardio, blood disorders, Guillain-Barre, things that we know already have been proven based on VAERS, based on other studies that are caused by the vaccines, suddenly increased starting when? January 2021. And this is game over. This is an epidemiological system that was designed long before the pandemic. Remember, if you have training accidents uh, taking place in the military that are causing injuries, if you have you know, hazardous materials exposures, we need to know about it. right? Th- think about the Gulf War syndrome, things like that. Uh, it- it's-, it's as much of a national security issue as it is a public health issue. So this is a, a, a very expensive system. It's, it's monitored hour to hour by the Defense Health Agency public health officials. And you're never going to get better data than this. And that data confirmed everything we suspected in our worst nightmares, that VAERS was really underreported, and that this thing has caused hundreds of thousands of deaths and millions of injuries. Well, we were wondering what was what was going to be their response. Typically, they come out with a fact check within 24, 48 hours. They went an entire week. It was radio silence. In comes PolitiFact yesterday, and they did a, an extremely short fact check, and they're the first ones to have claimed to actually have spoken to, the, to DOD officials. And they came out with the most outlandish, unbelievable thing I've ever heard in my life in politics – And it demonstrates openly that they're willing to lie when everyone knows that they're they're buffoons. Here's what PolitiFact said. They claimed they they so basically they admitted that the 2021 data is correct. But they're trying to say that the 2016 to 2020 is all a glitch. Five years worth of data. Five years worth of data. They spoke to this guy, Peter Graves, spokesperson for the Defense Health Agency's Armed Forces Surveillance Division. And they said, officials compared numbers in the DMED with source data in the DMSS and found that the total number of medical diagnoses from those years represented only a small fraction of actual medical diagnosis. So they're saying, no, those five years, they were really underreported. The 2021 numbers, however, were up to date, giving the appearance of significant increase occurrences on all medical diagnosis in 2021 because of the underreporting for 2016 to 2020. And they said they have taken it offline to identify and correct the root cause of the data corruption. Okay. And then they say, therefore, we rule this false. Now, what rule what false? We didn't say anything. We just said, here's the data, and they're verifying that the data is true. They're just saying it's a glitch and they need to fix it. So that's, first of all, there's no false information. So now, let's just put aside the vaccine for a a moment as a possible culprit and just look at the enormity of this story. What they are reporting in their own words 
is an earth-shattering national security story. They're telling us that a system that was designed to be monitored day-to-day by DHA officials for five straight years was corrupted, not just on one or two ICD codes, but hundreds upon hundreds, maybe thousands of ICD codes worth, completely corrupted, completely not true, and they didn't know about it until Thomas Renz spoke at Ron Johnson's hearing. Well, if nothing else, Thomas Renz deserves a Medal of Honor. Congressional Medal. Man, that, that, that's a big deal. We didn't know. We didn't know that any single... I mean, you have to believe that over the last six years, they've been writing reports based on all sorts of trends in military injuries and ailments. All of that is erased and not true based on now they have to fix a glitch. A glitch that wasn't one data point from one day, but every data point for five years. We are to believe that. And that's what they're saying. So that's a huge story. Well, why are they fact-checking us as false? It turns out it's true. You know, just from a national security standpoint, this is this is the biggest story of the year. It's like this begs so many questions, and then they're like, false, move on. Wait a minute. I don't want to move on. That's a big story. Moreover, here's the problem with that. See, we thought they would deny the 2021 data. No, that that that's that's not true. That's, that's a lot easier. The problem when you go back to five years, here's the problem with that. So they're admitting, they're saying the 2021 data is good. So I would have to believe that for five years straight, it was corrupted. And then automatically, on its own, on January 2021, the train got reset on the tracks and it had the right number, which is, you know, several fold more in all these codes. But on its own, not that they fixed it, meaning there was a major glitch, glitch, glitch that needs fixing, and they're fixing it now, but it fixed itself on its own, but only for 2021. And they didn't know about it until Thomas Renz, and now they're fixing the previous five years. So you have to believe two things at the same time. One is that the epidemiologists missed five years of epidemiological data that was underreported by like three to five fold. And they didn't know about it. But then it fixed itself for 2021 without them knowing about the fix and the contrast until Thomas Renz. And now they're fixing the previous years. Folks, if you don't believe that we've been lied to to this degree of magnitude on other data the civilian CDC world has been using, you're missing the entire point. To me, the cover-up and their response is as big of a story, if not bigger, than the revelation of the data. It is mentally ill. No sane person could believe this. It happens to be that just the five-year, very arbitrary baseline Right? There's nothing unique about 2016 to 2020. That's just what this cabal that Thomas Renz put together of you know three named uh, military doctor whistleblowers along with uh, you know a couple dozen others working on it in the background. 
They just put it together. Happens to me that just that was corrupted. Not before or not afterwards. Mentally ill. Mentally ill. Now, the only way this corruption could go on is if we allow the government military corporate complex to take over. Stop supporting companies that hate you. Support those that share our values. Patriot Mobile is America's only Christian conservative wireless provider. They have the broadest nationwide coverage. They use the same towers as all the major carriers. You get the same great service. Plus, they have plans to fit your budget. They have a 100% U.S.-based customer service team that speaks English. Actually, I understand you. More importantly, Patriot Mobile shares your values. They actually donate to pro-life causes, veterans, first responders, uh, and and uh, you know religious freedom. Go to patriotmobile.com slash CR or call 972-PATRIOT to get free activation with offer code CR. They have special discounts for first responders and veterans. Again, patriotmobile.com slash CR or call 972-PATRIOT. Stop giving your money to the cartel, Verizon, T-Mobile, all these guys. They hate your guts. Now, these guys hate us so much, they're willing to lie to our face. So, folks, I mean, here's the problem. Here's the, there's multiple problems with this. So, number one, number one, this ref, it's not just a data game, like some computer screen. It reflects the data, it reflects the clinical reality that these doctors were dealing with. So now we have to wait for them to, they're going to publish data at some point. They'll redo the, the other five years. So they're, they're going to watch them watch them make it worse and, and show 2021 less than any other year. Problem is that they're seeing this. Like, for example, the largest increase was neurological codes. If you look at Pfizer's own FOIA document, right? In addition to VAERS, Pfizer had their own data for a few months reporting something like 158,000 adverse events. The largest single category was neurological. And the largest jump we've seen in the DMED data for 2021 is, you guessed it, neurological data. So you, know, you can't run or hide from that. We got them around the you-know-where. That's straight up. All the you know cardiological stuff, you can't run or hide from it. Then also, there's other. here's the problem. If there's a glitch, that means all the data was messed up and underreported and is properly in, in overreported, not overreported, but properly set at a higher level for 2021. The problem with that is if you look at some data that was released, they, they released some more data from uh, the whistleblowers, they have certain diseases, typhoid, chagas, um, a tick-borne, uh, stuff, Lyme disease, it's all on par or less. It's not, it's not, it's not increased. So in other words, things that you would uh, imagine have nothing to do with COVID or COVID vaccines, they, they indeed didn't increase. So <laughs> it happens to be, it was a glitch. So you could believe it's a glitch. Let's say we, we had one data point. We ah, it's a glitch. But it's thousands of ICD codes are a glitch for just for their arbitrary five-year um, baseline and then reset on its own coinciding with the vaccination rollout. But they didn't know that it reset. 
and didn't know it was a problem the other years until Thomas Renz came a year later and like, yeah, we need to figure out what 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 went on here. But it, but 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 what we do know is it was underreported. That that much we do know. We've been lied to. I want you guys to understand that even what I've been giving you over the last two years, I've always assumed it's worse than what I say, but I'll only assert as much as I know is true. And at the end of the day, even the analyses that we're doing, whether it's the vax, whether it's the epidemiological curves, whether it's anything, it's based on their data. And we're assuming our world and data, Hopkins, you know, worldometers, all this stuff is true. Remember, if they're willing to, you know, as we're going to discuss momentarily with our guests, the craziness of what they're doing in the hostels, they're willing to kill people. They're willing to kill people with the shots, with the denial of treatment, with releasing the vaccine. They're certainly willing to just completely fabricate numbers. You know, it's not just, oh, you know, the, an accounting gimmick. That's just what we could prove. But straight up, the numbers are, could just be false. It means the same thing how in the UK for an entire, you know, eight, ten months, you know, the overwhelming majority of deaths and hospitalizations were among the vaccinated. And in America, it's all the opposite. It's overwhelmingly unvaccinated. Really? You really believe that? Saying even without the accounting gimmick of the 14-day lag. So now the military is going to go and, and erase everything. But the good news is they actually have video recordings of these whistleblowers downloading at a timestamp time at various times last year this data. So, you know, they can't run or hide from it. It was there. We have it. We have the video of it. Um the actual dat- database. So the only the, the sad thing is that there were many more queries that needed to be done because there's so much you can do with this data. Now it's all going to be corrupted. They're just going to change it. And by the way, it's down now. They took it down. They took it down so you can't access it. It was on and off the last week. It was taken down an hour after Thomas Renz did it. Thomas Renz announces. So, folks, there is nowhere to run. There is nowhere to hide. Okay? This is a cover-up. The important thing going forward is that we inoculate ourselves from biomedical fascism. We, we cannot allow this to go, to be let go. We need the investigative arm. We need the legislative arm. We need the legal arm. We have to keep fighting this. We'll fight other issues at the same time. But even if COVID goes away tomorrow, the restrictions go away, even if all the vaccine requirements go away, they have already set the baseline and they're going to try to run away from it. We have to press our advantage while we have it. Now, I did want to get to the main course today. Obviously, we had a pretty big appetizer here. But when we're talking about the corruption of the Pentagon, the corruption of FDA, basic life and death decisions that are now corrupted, the data is corrupted, the medicine is corrupted, the science is corrupted, and we can't rely on pretty much anything. But what's even more disquieting than leaders in government engaging in such cruel corruption, such denial of basic science, basic care, is this mentality, this culture of cruelty seeping down to every ordinary doctor in a hospital. This voodoo backwards approach to medicine, approach to care. One of the reasons why our theme this week 
is that we cannot let this go, even if they end all their restrictions tomorrow. This genie's out of the bottle. This lack of regard for humanity, this backwards care, this business of, you know, my pursuant to my article today, remdesivir, Paxlovid, Molnupiravir, approving insane, dangerous drugs and then denying basic care of things that have been around for, for decades. And it's not just a matter of drugs. You're going to hear today, it's an entire approach from the PCP up to the ICU. That needs to be rebuilt from scratch. Thankfully, there are organizations that are propping up to deal with this. And we need to see from a public policy standpoint, headed forward, how we could rebuild our medical system around this. With us today, our really special guest from AmericanFrontlineNurses.com. That's AmericanFrontlineNurses.com. A lot of you guys are sending me heartbreaking emails. Uh, People on BiPAP, people on nasal cannula, they're threatening to ventilate them. What do I believe? What do I not believe? What do I do? I, I, I feel there's a better approach, but I can't get get this through to my doctor. What do I do? So our guests today are going to help you. Now, this segment is sponsored by ZStack, very appropriately. If you don't want to wind up in the hospital, you really got to take control of your own health care. I just took my ZStack before getting on air here today, uh, created by Dr. Vladimir Zelenko, one of the first people to actually try to treat covid uh, this product includes zinc, quercetin, vitamin C, vitamin D, the proper doses, all in one. Very economical, very user-friendly. It is uh, GMP certified. It's made right here in the USA. Go to zstacklife.com slash Daniel. Enter promo code Daniel. Get 5% off. That's zstacklife.com slash Daniel, promo code Daniel. And look, if everyone would have followed his advice, we wouldn't have had many people in the hospital to begin with. But let's get to our guest. Um we actually have two for the price of one today. Our first guest is Nicole Sirotek. She's the original whistleblower, if you remember, that nurse that created the viral video from a New York hospital during the early days of COVID, uh, showing that people were not getting the, the proper care. Uh, she sacrificed her career to do that. She now founded the American Frontline Nurses to help create the advocate network that helps people from the outside uh, to navigate the hospital system with her today is Kim Thompson. Although she's not a nurse, she's a businesswoman, uh, but she does have a degree in health administration. It has a lot of family members who have worked COVID in the hospitals as nurses and has seen firsthand the need to create an advocacy network. She is the COO of American frontline nurses. Um, Kim and Nicole, Thank you so much for joining us today on this very important broadcast. Thank you. This is wonderful to be here. We appreciate the invite, and we know that our information is going to help your listeners to get on the right track. So this is really the thing. I've done a lot over the last eight months or so to get treatments into people's homes. We've partnered with various uh, uh, pharmacies and doctors. We've given people the best advice. But the bottom line is, you know, inevitably some people don't do early treatment or once in a while you'll have a breakthrough, a really bad viral load, whatever it is, they wind up in the hospital. And these are really the heartbreaking cases I don't know what to do with. Uh, We used to think of a hospital as a safe place, a place that cares for people. 
Um, but now people have to be scared of hospitals. Um, Nicole, let's start with you. I- am I correct in asserting that in 2020, you know, when this started, it was more neglect born out of pandemonium. It was, it was just, we never experienced this before. They didn't know how to treat it. Um, it was more, maybe you'd say, by accident. But as time has gone on, my eyes cannot unsee the things I've seen. My ears cannot unhear the things I've heard taking place in the hospital. It almost seems malvolent. Is that a good description of what has occurred over the last two months, or is it deeper than that? You know, um, from where we are on the front lines, I think that's a, a very good synopsis. In the beginning of the pandemic, back in the, in the beginning of May of 2020, yes, there was confusion, there was chaos, there was incompetence, and there was exploitation um, that led to the numbers and the deaths that, that we have here in the United States. So the pharmaceutical companies rolling in with all of these uh, medications that they just pulled off the shelf that had failed other clinical trials like remdesivir, the failed Ebola drug, they decide to pull off the shelf and medically experiment on the minorities and the marginalized populations in New York. And then now we see that from that hysteria and that pandemonium that I don't know who it is, the hires up, the administration, it's a top-down effect. They are controlling the health care that people are receiving, and the health care is actually killing people. The treatments are killing people. Neglect is killing people. Starvation is killing people in these hospitals. Because here's the thing. If we are in a true pandemic, especially like if you compare it to 1918 or the Ebola outbreak and things like that, we pull dead people out of homes. There are literally, there's a system for triaging bodies out of the home if people die in a pandemic. And in fact, many states actually have protocols for this. We aren't pulling dead bodies out of homes. They only die when they're in the hospital. And people say, oh, well, it's because they're so critical. If they were so critical, then they would also be dying at home. There would be no beds. People would be dying in their home. They'd be dying on the way to the hospital. No, they walk into the hospital and then they die. And they die in a very short amount of time. They are not allowed evidence-based practice, early intervention strategies, or even competent strategies for healthcare inside these hospitals. And this is what is fueling the hysteria in the United States, because we don't see this in any other developing nation. So, uh, you know, just to piggyback on that, moving on to Kim, so, you know, you look at this from a business perspective, you have experience in health administration, You look two years into the pandemic. One of the things I think everyone said when this started was when we contrasted to the Spanish flu, we didn't have antibiotics. We, I don't know what we even had in terms of oxygen. So it made sense. A lot of people died, but we all expected that once we'd get a handle on this after the first few weeks, um, you know, we've dealt with severe pneumonias, COPD, respiratory distress. This is particularly vicious. It is is a you know, bioweapon, the ACE2 binding, spawns inflammatory reactions, spawns microclotting, but we know how to deal with microclotting. We have anti-inflammatories. You would have expected over two years that the hospital mortality rate would have gone down. Are we seeing any evidence that it's gone down? We're not seeing any evidence that it's gone down. In fact, it's gone up. Um, from, From what I can speak to, which is the business side, there's a very large financial incentive to have people die in hospitals. 
When people enter hospitals with a COVID diagnosis, the hospital is automatically reimbursed 100% of what they feel like they're going to choose to bill. Now, um, they are not reimbursed this way for, say, coming in with <clears throat> maybe some asthma reaction. They're not reimbursed coming in with pneumonia. So they are. it's a financial incentive to diagnose people with COVID. Moreover, the hospitals get $35,000 of government money for every single vent that they insert into people. So when you hear that people are saying, I, I made the choice, well, their families are saying they made the choice to get on a vent, it's because the hospital goes in and says, you're going to die if you don't get on a vent. But they're not willing to do anything leading up to a vent, like a nebulizer, like any kind of um, steroids that would open up the airways. It goes right to a vent. There's a lot of money in that. And then on top of that, when a person dies in the hospital, it's an additional $13,000. So there is not an incentive for people to be sent home. One man that I was working with his family yesterday passed away. And what had happened is four weeks ago, he entered the hospital because he had a hard time breathing. He was experiencing COVID conditions, um, symptoms. And they said, you know, you've got to get on this vent. They didn't give him an option. And uh, his family kept trying to get him off the vent. Eventually, it burst his lungs, and, or they, they collapsed, and he passed away yesterday. But the family was never able to even go in and make decisions. They weren't go- able to go in and visit him because the hospital doesn't want questions. So let's go through this one by one. There's several spheres to this. There's the the lack of care. There's the experimentation of drugs that have been proven problematic and don't work. There's the lack of information. They don't communicate. There's the lack of visitation. There's a bunch of different buckets here. Nicole, could you answer this question for me? It's really bothering me intellectually and morally, philosophically. Um, I understand what Kim is saying. And we all get the incentives. We understand the people from the administrative floor, why they're making these decisions. And while it's very disturbing, I understand it. What I can't understand is at the floor level, the the, the doctors. So I could even understand that they're ignorant and don't follow the studies on, you know, ivermectin versus remdesivir, methylprednisolone versus dexamethasone. As, as appalling as that is, I could kind of understand it. But what I can't understand is this, what she was alluding to. This is not a macro decision. This is a micro decision. That patient, that person, someone comes in, their sats are starting to drop. You put them on nasal cannula. As of now, they're stable. Now, you might think there might be a time they won't be stable, but as of now, they're stable. You know you get them on a vent 90%, they ain't coming off. That's a kiss of death. I have had numerous cases where they kick out the wife and then magically 12 hours later they say they crashed and they need to go on a vent. But, so maybe that's true, maybe it's not, and they didn't certainly didn't do anything leading up to it that would help avoid that false dichotomy. But what I do know is in all those cases, from day one, even when they were setting in the 90s and stable on non-invasive oxygen, they were pushing the vent, and had they acceded to it, they would have done it from day one. What could possess someone medically to do that? Um, that's a really good question. <laughs> and the issue is, honestly, I don't know 
because when we see this, as you're correct, as soon as they kick the family out, they intubate the patient. And the patient, honestly, from what we see, because we track these numbers that American Frontline Nurses with all the patients that we help, they always end up intubated as soon as the family leaves and always at night. Now, under normal circumstances, you would you would ventilate a person early before you have what's called a crash airway and you're in a, a code situation where, you know, you have to break out the paddles and all the medications to rescue someone from the brink of death. But we know after two years that you want to wait until the 11th hour to intubate someone because once you put them on there, they're not going to come off without strategies. And when it comes to why they do what they do is that they literally will tell you, we're following orders. We are following orders. And if you ask for anything outside of their protocols, um, which is steroid, sedation, paralytic, and that's about it, they physically the doctors can't. I was in a care conference call one time with a patient, and I asked him, like, can we get vitamin C? I don't even want IV vitamin C. I just want it crushed up and put in the, in the feeding tube. And they're like, and the, and the doctor was talking with one of the other attendings and he's like, we can't, it'll get flagged. Like not realizing that we were still on the phone. They're watching from the administrative level what these doctors are ordering. And a lot of times they don't even get the option to order it because it doesn't exist in the computer. You have what's called a set, a set of orders. So you come in with a particular diagnosis. We know at a basic standard of care, we should have XYZ treatments. Um, you can add to that. I kind of call it like when you order a burger. You go into a restaurant and there's a burger. You can add cheese if you want cheese. And if you don't want tomatoes or tomatoes is not applicable, let's say you're allergic to tomatoes, you can take the tomatoes off. That's how an order set works. There's a standard order set with XYZ things on it. You can add and subtract to it to customize it to the patient. That is not allowed in most hospital settings now with the computer order set. You're not allowed to add a home med. You can't take things off the order set. So you either click remdesivir or you, or yeah, click remdesivir. Um, and you cannot add other things like vitamin C or D. Sometimes it's not even physically available in the hospital. Wow. That's what's going on. But it, is, it is an administrative top down to the floor system. But Nicole, isn't it more than just the therapeutics? Could you walk us through this as as a nurse and and you've done um you know you've been in pretty critical situations in your career. Um could you walk us through typically? My understanding was this. My understanding was when you come in with COPD, seasonal pneumonia and your sats are dropping into the low 90s. I always thought it's typically not the t the kiss of death. That usually Unless you're someone at the end of their life, often they do die of pneumonia, you don't have a 60-year-old, 55-year-old come in, they're sats at 92, and you're like, man, we're never going to see that guy. He's, he's going to die now. And again, I do believe this is a bioweapon. There are pathophysiologically reasons it is a little tougher. But could you walk through to our audience, aside from the therapeutics, what are the typical strategies you would do to work with someone in respiratory distress that are not being done and often what's antithetical to that is being done? Sure. We make sure to titrate the oxygen and the oxygen delivery device appropriately. So what are you on? Are you on a nasal cannula? Are you on a non-rebreather? Are you on the BiPAP? Are you getting chest physiotherapy? Is anyone working with you from uh, the respiratory department to use an incentive spirometer to open up your lungs, to increase surfactant, to break up those infiltrates in your lungs? 
is anyone working with you with what's called an acapella? Um, I always say that wrong, but it's a little uh, flutter valve device that you breathe into that shakes your airway and helps break up mucus. Is anyone giving you a mucolytic if we have consolidates in the end? Is anyone applying a flutter vest to you to help? Are they proning you before you end up on the ventilator? Um, are they feeding you? That's always a great question. I had a, a 5 a.m. call um, this morning from North Carolina, and they're like, they're not even feeding him or giving him water. He's too weak to eat and too weak to drink. And I'm like, make them put place a feeding tube into his nose. It'll be uncomfortable, but he can get adequate fluid and food um, through there. And I fought for an hour to get a tube feeding. They were just telling him he was just going to die. And he had actually had resolved COVID. He was just, you know, at the age of 78, they just wrote him off. And I'm like, any type of illness can knock the elderly down like that. All we have to do is give them supportive care. And they're like, no, we're not doing it. And I fought them for a feeding tube. And now that he's got food and fluid into him, he's perking back up. He's more coherent. He's able to uh, ambulate to the restroom with assistance. So, I mean, there's all these things that they're simply not doing. I mean, are they turning these people when they're... Um, when they've been sitting in one position for long, are they using pressure relieving devices so that way they don't end up with skin breakdown? I mean, they're not even on a ventilator. I'm like, if they're sitting upright, struggling to breathe, let's get the pressure relieving devices in here so that way they don't end up with pressure ulcers, which, by the way, is not reimbursable uh, with Medicare. So they should know better already. Are they on some basic standards of care that prior to COVID, doesn't matter what your diagnosis was, you would get these treatments such as protonics to prevent GI bleeds. What about Lovenox to prevent blood clots in the legs or sequential compression devices to your lower extremities to prevent blood clots in your legs? They're not even doing that anymore. And then, and then I, I mean, no nebulizer either. Mm-hmm. No, no nebulizers. We asked for Dr. Bartlett's protocol with budesonide uh, four times a day. They're like, well, he's already getting steroids. And I'm like, yeah, he's getting systemic steroids. Not Let's topical. get targeted steroids. Yeah, let's get it right to the lungs. That's what budesonide does. They don't want to do it. I'm like, what about some albuterol? No, it's not going to work. I, I will tell you these people off. What is amazing, uh, you, you know, and I've had a lot of doctors on, and they've agreed, but I've seen this, you know, in in my uh, non-clinical layman practice, just helping people out. When people get into that zone, day five to eight, you know, in Delta. Where, where the sats start dropping, freeze frame, that moment, if you hit it with the inhaled budesonide, their sats always go up through the 90s um, almost every time. And then certainly if you do have high dose uh, uh, prednisone or methylpred, um, it's, it's shocking how they'll, they'll, they're stuck on dexamethasone and a homeopathic uh, dose of it. Um, but back to Kim, what are some of the things you're – you're seeing the last month or two some emerging trends um, in some of the cruelty of care, whether it's the denial of, of treatment. The but I, but particularly if you could talk about the information flow, the blackout, where what I'm finding is that loved ones don't even have a clear picture. Like you know what I'm saying? When when someone dies, you see on the movies when someone gets a tough diagnosis, the the guy comes out. You know, with the lab code, and he says, "Look, here's what we think's going on. Doesn't look good. Here's what we're gonna try. Here, 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 here's the you know what we think the chances are. You have a certain sense of where it's going. They literally don't know what's going on. Right, right. And what I'm seeing is that 
as a society, the way that we are catering to this COVID pandemic or whatever you want to call this incident um, planned or or pandemic, um, we are failing to respect the idea of informed consent. Because what you just described, you know, if there's a harsh diagnosis, you've got somebody either from um, the human resources type of area or a doctor or an assistant or a social worker that comes out and they kind of explain to the family, hey, this is going on. We've got these three options. Which one are you most comfortable with? This is what we would recommend. And that has completely gone out the window for care. Now it's more, hey, we've got this patient we're doing this. Oh, you don't like it. Oh, you're asking questions. You know what? I feel bothered. Get out. And we are not giving people informed consent. We have to inform them before they consent. And the idea that, you know, these people should just automatically know the, the failure rates of the intubation or the vents, or that we should just automatically expect people to know that remdesivir is going to kill their patient or their friend or their loved one. Um, If we're going to give informed consent and give them the option to do something, why don't we put the cost of reimbursement for the hospital next to the treatment? Remdesivir, they get $7,500 for every time they give that to a patient. Whereas maybe ivermectin, you get what, 12 cents. And so we need to look at informed consent across the board, both financially, both um, the way that it impacts the patient and and give people options. Uh, Nicole, I wanted to go back to one one of the things you mentioned with the ventilator. People are very confused about it. I mean, now it's synonymous with a death sentence, but could you explain broadly what is a ventilator for you know, obviously everything has its appropriate time and place. What is it for and how is it being abused? Sure. So a ventilator is actually external positive pressure. So they have the tube in your mouth and it's going to push air into your lungs and then it's going to release and the air will come out of your lungs. So it's artificial ventilation. Um, A BiPAP mask does the same thing, except for it's strapped to your face. It's not uh, inserted into your throat. And you typically don't need to be paralyzed and sedated to be on a BiPAP machine. That's only when you get what we we tell non-medical, the tube in your throat. And so it's a very invasive, very risky procedure to do. It does come with its own risks and it isn't designed to be a long-term airway strategy, especially if these people are on ventilators for 30 days to 60 days. And what we're seeing is they will prophylactically intubate a patient, which under normal circumstances for some other airway issue would be an appropriate intervention. We want to intubate before we end up with what's called a crash airway. However, with COVID, we know that the ventilator is the step before the grave. We need to hold out until the 11th hour before we intubate, and they're not doing that. So then once they're on the ventilator, they don't want to advance the airway into a tracheostomy, which is a more permanent long-term airway strategy for these folks that are on the ventilator. Um, And then with that comes all of the problems associated with intubation. There are um, um, antimicrobial resistant bacteria that 
you are at risk for when you're in the hospital. They're called superbugs, MRSA, VRE. Um, there's a new fungal infection that is now a super infection that has no treatment because it's become resistant to all antifungals. I can't remember the name at the moment, but if it comes to me, I'll let you know. Um, there's that. There's esophageal erosion from having the ET tube in there. One time there was an endotracheal tube that had been in for two months, and I'm like, you need to advance into a tracheostomy. And they're like, oh, well, he's not stable. I'm like, you're going to erode the esophagus. And sure enough, they perforated a hole into the mm. esophagus, and it became a life-threatening emergency. So there's a lot of risks that come with it, as well as what's called barotrauma to the lungs. You literally can pop holes into your lungs. They're like balloons inside a birdcage, ultimately. Um, and then that becomes a life-threatening emergency as well, where we have to insert chest tubes. That's another line in you putting risk for infection. We can't get the ventilator pressures we need once we have chest tubes in. Um, this was the situation with the Tamara Drock case at uh, Palm Beach Regional Medical Center in Florida, where they did not give uh, the risk versus benefits of scoping her while she was intubated. And it caused what was called a pneumothorax. Uh, it pops, it bursts the lungs, it collapsed the lungs. And we could never get the pressures necessary. And she ultimately had three chest tubes when she died. And I had to tell the husband, Ray and Drock, I'm like, call me whenever they decide to do another intervention so I can force them to tell you benefit versus risk so you can make it an accurate decision because they never told him the risk that she could end up with a collapsed lung. And so there are a lot of risks associated with the ventilator, and it has to be the absolute last resort, not just willy-nilly, oh, the wife's gone, let's intubate now in a couple hours type situation, because they always intubate once the family is gone, and it's almost always at night. And they almost never come off of it. And and like we're saying, the way I view COVID as a bioweapon, it's kind of like a football game in the fourth quarter when you're down, you know, two touchdowns and at best you could squeeze out two possessions and you know it's what I'm finding and I, w I want you to comment on this Nicole and then I want to get back to the organizational um, structure of what you guys are trying to do but what I find is there's an unbelievable minimalist approach so on the one hand COVID is, ex is extremely deadly that you have to treat it everywhere it doesn't exist you have to mask a two-year-old you know COVID 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 everything is COVID but then when you have someone who actually has it and let's say they're on BiPAP on up, and you know how that roadshow ends. I mean, you know at this point, it's not a matter of, oh, I'm worried about tossing an interception, right? Just by virtue of the clock running out, if you don't make an affirmative play to deal with the pulmonary inflammation, to deal with the cytokine storm, the microclotting, you know this this won't end well. You, you just know that. You have to make a play. You know, Flavio, Dr. Flavio from Brazil, he's told me there's times he's used 1,000 milligrams of methylpred. And it sounds like a lot, but, I mean, if you know 90% of the person is going to die if you don't make a play, you have to take what you know does potentially speak to the mechanism of action of the virus and the response and, and deal with it. But they don't deal with it. I, I've had cases where they tell me they'll tell the wife there's a problem. D could cause this. Vitamin C could cause this. And on paper, theoretically, some of this stuff in its right time could be true. But the guy's going to freaking die if you don't make any play. Is that what you're finding, a minimalist approach through and through? Absolutely. And so once you're on that ventilator and they just keep saying you're going to die, that's when we invoke 
the federal and state act, the physician's right to try, where we can try off-label drugs, we can try experimental treatments, we can try um, reasonably logical interventions such as ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine or, uh, you know, toxiluzumab or something like that. And they, we literally have state and federal legislation that permits this. And we have to take them to court to use it where we never had to do that before. They don't want to do anything about it. I mean, honestly, if if they would just try a Hail Mary, at least, I wouldn't have to file the sheer number of lawsuits that I file against these hospitals, which is where all of our donation money goes, is to help these people. I We have to literally file a lawsuit to invoke the physician's right to try, where prior to COVID, we never had to do such a thing. We would talk mm. with the care team and say, we want to try this because we know there is a 99% chance that they're going to die. Because remember, ventilators are a death sentence. You know, it's, it's a terminal diagnosis, according to COVID and Fauci and all of the alphabet soups. Then let's try something. And for the first time in, in medical history since the physician's right to try has come out, the answer is no. And they don't want to try to save these lives. And that's that's the deplorable malfeasance that is occurring in these hospitals. And again, I'm finding that even with younger people, I mean, certainly older people, they peg them, you ain't coming out of here. But I've found that even in, with younger people, middle-aged oh, yeah, people, um, it, it is shocking. They tried, to, they tried to write off a 28-year-old. I, I never Just understood like, that like because week. I always thought America's healthcare was often criticized sometimes to a fault for, you know, spending so much money on every last thing and trying to save lives. And here it's just like what and, and I think it's important our audience realize it's not just the ventilator. The ventilator legitimately we you know, even from our end, you get Dr. Verone, you get Pierre Corey, Paul Merrick in the room all together, you know, you're only gonna have a certain success rate. The the key is more well, first of all, early treatment, but beyond that, when they admit to the ER, the SATs are still, you know, lower 90s, the cytokine storm starting, there's tons of tons of options. You rattled off a bunch of them. Um, and, you know, that's part of that minimalist approach. Uh, we're running out of time here. Kim, I want you to discuss, we have a lot of people listening that unfortunately, even to this day, are still going through this. Um, this is not over with, uh, there are a lot of people that that do have have issues with the virus. They they do have the bad pulmonary, pulmonary inflammation. Uh, they're confused. They're alone. They have nowhere to go. Could you talk about the various forms of help that you provide to people that will um, contact you and, and and how people can contact your organization? Absolutely. So American Frontline Nurses was founded so that we can help people through an advocate network. Now, we've got our advocate network. If you go to AmericanFrontlineNurses.com, you'll see the titles at the top where you can click on Advocate Network or Ask an Advocate Zoom. Um, these two avenues will lead you to where you can join a Zoom call or you can go to our Telegram chat and ask a nurse your question. You will get a response very quickly, either in real time at the Zoom or very quickly within a couple hours at the very most, depending on how inundated we are, in the Telegram chat. One of the exciting things that we're going to be implementing by the end of February is a 24-hour hotline. This 24-hour hotline will be staffed for 12 hours with a nurse during normal business hours, and it will be staffed with a medical assistant in the off hours. 
Um, that is what we need donations for so that we can put people on these lines to in real time help. Now, when the medical assistant is there, she can triage it, take notes, figure out what we need, and then we can have our advocates call back the next day. Um, one of the other things that we're excited to be able to do is that we have a really great partnership with our our friends over at uh, FLCCC. We follow those protocols strictly because that is how you're going to save lives. And we are familiar with the doctors. They love us. They believe in what we're trying to do. And they know that when they send people to our network, that these people are going to be cared for. Another exciting advance that we are going to be trying to implement by the end of February is networking and partnering with different home health care organizations. The reason we're doing this is that there are a lot of underserved underprivileged people that are not able to get to a place where they can buy the drugs that they need to help themselves. So we've got home health care that we're going to be partnering with. We also have pharmacies that will overnight the medication. We have doctors that will write the prescriptions. So when you need something, go to American Frontline Nurses. Go to the Ask an Advocate Zoom or Ask an Advocate Advocate Network in our Telegram chat. And you will be put in touch with people. Now, if you do need more advanced hands-on advocacy where things like we're trying to get your patient or get your loved one out of the hospital or we need to file some kind of lawsuit against the hospital for right to try, then we will have a personal advocate for you. There is a small fee so that we can pay our nurses to do that. Um, But there are options and we can help you find them. Wow. So that's that's certainly very terrific. And you can go to AmericanFrontlineNurses.com. Please donate generously. This is very much a need. And, and my fear is this is going to be a need even after COVID. Again, I think that culture has taken on a life of its own. And I'm already seeing it bleed over into other forms of care as well. People need a second opinion. They need compassion. A lot of people, I just feel they feel alone. They don't know what to think. They just... They're told things. They don't know what to do. So, you know, we have the frontline doctors, but it seems like what you guys also offer, if I'm getting this correctly, is that you you, you give this emotional support, this um, certitude that they have that backing that they know they could either, you know, fight with the doctors or at least if they don't listen, they know in their mind they'll get an accurate second opinion. For sure. Our advocates review cases. <clears throat> to to know what's been happening, what was wrong, what was right, and that type of thing. Now, Nicole, could I, I, I want you to talk about this is very important because a lot of people are in this situation. Do you guys do jailbreaks? In other words, you talked about the partnership with uh, home, home health care networks. Do you help people at the stage where, again, I'd say they're, they're, they're stable on nasal cannula, but you're concerned that it, it could um, deteriorate and they're certainly doing nothing to help them and they don't have access to anything there that will help them uh, through that cytokine storm. Are you? Do you guys help guide people out of the hospital to get them care at home when appropriate? Yes. Um, we have a couple tricks in our uh, tool belt, I guess you can say, to do that. Um, one is if you are not 
on greater than 10 liters of oxygen and you have a strong support system at home that can assist you, we recommend being discharged on hospice. I call it the pseudo hospice or fake hospice because we typically get people better when they go home on hospice um, because we can get them that early intervention. But to go home on, on hospice because they will discharge you with oxygen because oxygen is deemed a comfort care. And they will send you home with uh, hospice uh, services that will come into the home on check on you a couple times a week and things like that. It'll be a nurse and a nurse's aide. Um, they typically come and assess the patient within 48 hours. So if you're capable of being on less than 10 liters of oxygen, the hospital can discharge you with home oxygen and um, home health or hospice. And as long as you have a strong support system at home that can assist you until you start to gain your strength back, that's one recommendation that we do. And we do have families that make the executive decision for the patient just to literally leave AMA, which is against medical advice. And we respect people's choice to do that, but we always just caution them on the oxygen level requirement mm -hmm. um, to to make sure that they'll be able to be safe at home. So there is that option as well. And what we are seeing across the nation is private membership associations with uh, freedom-minded healthcare groups are popping up all over. And they will send people into the home to kind of help and assist you as like a good Samaritan type group. Um, those are each unique to each demographic, each location. So as we find them, uh, we add them to our network so we can tell people about them. Because as you can see, anyone trying to fight back on tyranny puts themselves at risk um, for, you know, hate and, you know, discontent coming from people. So they try to stay off the radar, but there are multiple options like that. I kind of joked around with Stu Peters that he knew all of our tricks, like <laughs> discharging people home on hospice. Yeah, in their mind, it's hospice because there's nothing left to do. And I, we've certainly heard that a lot, ventilator or hospice. Obviously, there's two levels of crashing. You know, there's the first crash where you absolutely need oxygen, and that's what brings them into the hospital. Sometimes it's the dehydration, especially with Delta. They needed the fluids mm -hmm. at least. But then there's the second level of crashing. So it's kind of that in-between stage that I think we could mm -hmm. um, start helping a lot of people. They really don't need to be there. It's just the oxygen. That's very important. So again, guys, uh, you know, email me, dharwood at blazemedia.com if you have any questions uh, for Nicole and Kim and their team, AmericanFrontlineNurses.com. Um, Nicole, let, let me just end with this. Uh, please restore my faith in humanity. I'm, tr I'm trying to figure this out. I, I'm more of a legal guy. I, I don't know anything about science and, and, and medicine. I mean, this has all been new to me. Uh, although Ryan Cole has pretty much given me a year of medical school equivalent, you know, but I look at something like this and I, I can't get in the brains of these doctors. It's not like a gray area. It's literally like doing heart surgery, turning someone on their back and and opening up from the back. It's it's it, it's it's an air ball. It doesn't even register. Do they not? I understand, you know, they're not going to lose their job over it. OK, I get that. But when you speak to some doctors and nurses privately, do they get that there's more to the story? Are there more people out there that kind of understand it, or is this some sort of mass psychosis? Um, from what we see on the front lines, and we have thousands of nurses across the country, they see it, and they try, in, in a very microsystem setting, try to fight back the tyranny 
knowing at any minute that it could be their head or their license on the chopping block. I think a good chunk of them do realize what's going on, but for whatever reason, they don't leave. You know, what happens if all the nurses and doctors did leave? Um, You know, there wouldn't be any of the good nurses still left in there, you know, fighting for these patients and making micro changes to the system. And then there are others who honestly are either ignorant or simply do not care. Because like I said, we have groomed the country to trust medicine blindly, to trust the physicians, to trust the hospital systems blindly. And we are now all waking up to the corporate, you know, corruption in these hospital systems. So many are waking up very, very quickly. It does rattle them some, but what do they do? That's where a lot of people get stuck at. Well, what do I do? I still have a mortgage. I still have this. I I can't just leave my job. What do I do if I can't be a doctor anymore? And it creates a bit of an existential crisis. And this is why we're actually seeing increased suicide rates in physicians and especially nurses, because they don't want to participate in crimes against humanity, but they also feel trapped. So I think people are waking up. We just need them to wake up faster. And how I see this going is that we're not backing down. We're going to hold the line and we're not going to let them do this to our country and to the citizens in our country. Well, speaking of crimes against humanity, are you guys getting a lot of reports of maltreatment and discrimination if they believe the patient didn't get the vaccine? Yes. Mm -hmm. And here's the, the horrible thing that we tell people to do. We tell them to lie. We tell them to lie and say that they're vaccinated especially if they go into the ER, because they will either A, vaccinate you on the spot without you realizing, especially if you're unconscious, we got multiple reports of that. Um, That's a big issue in Canada right now as well. Um, Or they give you no care at all. I had several cases where they wouldn't even give them oxygen. Well, you should have been vaccinated. Wow. And to be quite honest, they're lying about the vaccination rates in people in the hospitals and on the ventilators, because in the order sets, when when you click, are they vaccinated? You either have to have three vaccines or you're not vaccinated. If you have Johnson and Johnson, you're not vaccinated. If you have two, but not three, you're not vaccinated. If you have three, but it hasn't been outside of 14 days, 14 days your third yeah. vaccination or your booster. Yeah. You're not vaccinated. They're lying about the numbers. Yeah. Well, that we knew, we knew that. ages ago mm-hmm. because I mean, the UK had yeah. granular weekly continuous data Um for months upon months, and it was the majority of them, the majority of the hospitalizations and deaths were among the vaccinated. So I had no reason to believe that in the U.S. is different. I could say certainly mm-hmm. the people coming to me for help, the majority of them are vaccinated. Um, yes. And it's it's and, and what's truly said is a lot of the vulnerable people, whether they're immunocompromised, I've dealt with several cases of people with uh, uh, solid organ transplants. It was known from day one that the vaccine never stimulated immunity for these people, and they were sold a bill of goods uh, that this would save them. They didn't get them treatment, and uh, so that's the thing. It's not like I'm seeing good care for vaccinated people either. They're getting exactly what we're talking about, but you're saying there's a whole nother level if they think you're not vaccinated. Yes. They will absolutely discriminate against you. I mean, I've never had anyone say, I told them I was unvaccinated and I got superior care. Yeah. And and one of the other things, too, is that we've got a lot of manipulation going on in the hospitals where if somebody goes in to the hospital and they do come through and and miserable but end up going home, I cannot tell you how many times those people have told me, 
the doctor looked at me in the eyes and said, good thing you were vaccinated or this would have been so much worse. There's no way to prove that. It's all brainwashing. And so I think as long as we're aware of that taking place and making sure that everyone knows it's okay to ask questions and it's okay to demand answers. Wow. Well, I'll say your your work is certainly needed headed forward, even beyond COVID. It really there really is a need for this. Ultimately, we need our own hospitals divorced from the entire cartel. Um, we need medical freedom to to reign supreme. But until now, advocate networks. This is great. So American frontline nurses, Kim and Nicole. Thanks for what you do. Thanks for giving us this advice and offering your services. And we really look forward to hearing from you guys again. Thank you so much. Take care. So again, folks, that was Nicole Sorotek and Kim Thompson, AmericanFrontlineNurses.com. We didn't get to a lot of what I had on the table for today, a lot of the news of the day, uh, but I think it was worth it. I'm just getting too many of these Emails and look, I know if you're the type that never experiences and you're like, ah, eh, I don't need this advice. You know, I want to hear about the news, but you know, it just this is a humanitarian crisis. It's unbelievable when you look at what is going on in Africa. We talked a little bit about this yesterday. Third world countries that don't seem to have problems, and yet we are like a fourth world country where we have all the resources, but we took it and flushed it and actually act terribly to each other. Uh, and and slide backwards that we have worse care than than in third world countries. This is a a big problem. What can we trust and not trust in the hospitals going forward? Um, what could we trust in our, with our doctors? That's why I cannot think of a better organization than this. It's a, it's a terrific idea, and this is the way we're going to break f- free of the clutches of the cartel, the government corporate cartel. We got to have people that use their skills. Use their passion to help others. You know, risk their career. Nicole destroyed her career over this. Um, I'm not sure what Kim was doing before, but I know Nicole is the is the is the nurse, and she uh, she's the head nurse there. She's the president of the organization. She gave this all up. She gave up her job because she just couldn't be a part of this genocide, and is now helping people from without. Um, again, the sooner the better. Just like you want early treatment, the better. So too, when you're dealing later stage, you got to get to this right when they're settled in the ER. Um, you got to take care of this. Get them out on oxygen if you can, so we can get doctors to properly treat them. Um, this is this is one of the biggest stories in American history. It really is that we have worse medicine than we had. In 1918. But again, this is why we cannot allow them to let it go. I'm just telling you, this is not going to end. The corporate government Medicare, Medicaid insurance cartel control of your ability to get care, life. That is not going to get any better, even if they end the vaccine mandates and the mass mandates, which of course are not ended, right? My county executive ended the mass mandate today, February 1st, but it's not over because it's only temporarily suspended when he feels that we're allowed to breathe. And then when he feels we're not allowed to breathe again, he'll bring it back. We have no freedom. So we're going to fight on, fight on, fight on 
We will dog these guys to the gates of hell. I will never back down. We're going to get the best information, the best guess, best strategies. And together with your help, God's province, we will defeat the bad guys. Till tomorrow, God bless you all, and thank you for listening.